Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word that you may, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. For God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance on our study. Our Father, we are thankful that we can be here this morning in order to open up your word and to have our thinking enlightened by the word of truth. Father, challenge us with what we study today for it is not necessarily an easy doctrine that we're looking at or an easy approach to it, but it is one that is very important for us to understand the significance of the present ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in session, seated at your right hand, and the significance of that for uh, his ministry to us and through us as the body of Christ, as the church in this church age. Father, help us to understand the significance that we as believers in Christ have been given us an exalted position in Christ. We have been given a new identity. We have been given an amazing amount of spiritual resources, most of which we cannot know unless we study your word and take what you have said and apply it in our lives. So, Father, we do um, pray that we might be challenged by all that we study and that we might be responsive to stand up and to pursue that challenge. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are studying in the ascension of Christ and the following session of Christ. The session is just from an old Latin word that translates as seating, that he, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So we are responding to this question, why is the ascension of Christ important for our spiritual lives? because that's really the focal point that we see in this passage. These are the verses that we read earlier in our scripture reading, and I wanted to draw your attention to verse verses 11 through 13, because this is where it's headed. It starts in verse 7 that Christ get, uh, that we've been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, and that in verse 8 says this is related to his ascension. And then we're told he gave these gifts, apostles and prophets, which were temporary gifts in the early church age. And now the gifts that continue, the leadership gifts, evangelists and pastor teachers, which is for the training that's verse 12 for the training of the saints to do the work of ministry until see there's there's an end game here and the end game is that we all are to reach spiritual maturity until we all come to a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to a mature man see you get to be mature because you have an understanding 
of the faith. That is all that is communicated in God's word. And so as we studied on Thursday night, when Peter closed out his second epistle, he said, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the end game is our spiritual maturity. And so that is directly tied to understanding this grace that's given uh, as a, uh, according to the measure of Christ's gift as a result of the ascension and session. So we, we began this last time just looking at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4 where we're told to each one of us grace was given according to, that is according to, a, it means according to a standard which is the measure of Christ's gift. That's the metric and Christ is the gift. So it could be translated the measure of the gift of Christ. And so that is a uh, an almost immeasurable gift to us because Christ is there represented as our Savior and as the head of his body, the church of which uh, we are a part. And then in order to substantiate this, the first thing that Paul does is he quotes from uh, Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen, and this line begins, therefore, the therefore is showing it's a conclusion from the principle stated in verse 7 that this grace that's given to us is, is understood by what is said in Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen. When he ascended on high, he led captive, captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So we have to spend a little time talking about this whole doctrine of the ascension of Christ. This is a doctrine that is not disputed by any uh, or any mainstream denomination uh, of Christianity. Everyone believes in the ascension of Christ. But if you don't have the right sort of theological framework for understanding God's plan and purposes in human history, then you can't exploit this doctrine. You don't can't quite grasp all that is involved in it. And so we'll see and make reference several times to the fact that those who hold to some sort of replacement theology, a replacement theology is that form of theological uh, a, a theology that has uh, interpreted Scripture somewhat allegorically and holds to the view that because Israel rejected the offer of the kingdom and rejected Christ or rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that because of that rejection, God has completely replaced them by the church and his promises to Israel are no longer important. And in fact, Israel is under some sort of curse or judgment and God is, is uh, not going to fulfill any promises to them because of their rejection of Christ. And this is the seedbed out of which anti-Semitism grows and flourishes. And this shows us that this is a, a, a very important doctrine. Within 
various forms of covenant theology. Lutheranism has its own sort of view. It's similar to covenant theology. It's a replacement theology, but it's not quite the same as, as covenant theology or reformed theology. Uh, you also have Roman Catholic theology, which is replacement theology, and it really doesn't matter how many times the Pope has come out and said that they reject replacement theology. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And they still hold to replacement theology. They're trying to redefine it as just that form of replacement theology that leads to uh, the persecution of the Jews and anti-Semitism, but it just falls apart because their rationale is illogical. And so what we'll see through this is a contrast between covenant theology, Lutheran theology, these other forms of theology versus dispensationalism, because dispensationalism, by understanding that this ascension of Christ and the session and what is happening here is so central to the church as distinct from Israel that God has a distinct plan for the church and for Christians in the church age that is vastly different from the role he had for Israel in the Old Testament period or will have for Israel in the future and in the kingdom. And so this is central to our understanding that the church is not Israel and Israel is not the church and that God is doing something distinctive in a very significant way in this present church age, which Israel never could have done and never was intended to do. And what we see is that Israel in the Old Testament is an earthly people. They are God's people with an earthly destiny, So they're an earthly people with an earthly destiny, and in the church age, we are a heavenly people with a heavenly destiny. Now, let's just think back a little bit to what we studied in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first uh, 10 verses really focus on a clear understanding of the grace that gave us salvation, that salvation by faith through grace that we that we spent a lot of time studying. And right in the middle of that section, uh, it talks about three things that happened at the instant of salvation that, that according to God's mercy, he did what? He caused us to be uh, made alive again. He raised us together, and he seated us together in Christ, that seated us together in Christ is the session. This is our new identity. We have been made alive together in him. We have been raised together, and we have been seated together in Christ. That is our identity, our legal position. It's not our experience, experiential position because we're on earth, but that is the identity that should inform all of our actions. That's the standard that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4.1 in our context, that we are to walk worthy of that high calling, that exalted position that is ours now that we are in Christ. That's related to the sessions. And that never happened to any Old Testament believer. And I don't believe it's going to be true of tribulation saints or of those in the millennial kingdom. There is something distinctive about what is happening 
in this particular church age. And so we have to look at, you know, the basics on what the ascension is. And so we just started last time by way of review a few basic verses talking about the ascension. The first one we looked at was Mark sixteen nineteen, which simply says that after the Lord had spoken to the disciples, he was received up into heaven. And I pointed out that this is a passive voice verb. And so it, Christ is received. He doesn't just sort of take a slight knee bend and then blast off into heaven on his own power. He is received. It's a picture of God's acceptance of him and acceptance of his work on the cross and receiving him back into heaven. Luke two twenty four forty nine to 51 states it a little differently. When they came together, they walked out as far as Bethany, which is on the south, uh, southeast slope of the Mount of Olives, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it, now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was, it, it, the King James translates it, he was parted. But it's not, that's a passive voice in the English. And the verb in the Greek is the one on the lower left, deistemi, which is an aorist active voice verb. So it shouldn't be translated, he was parted. It should be translated, he separated. Christ moves apart from the group just a little bit, and then he's carried up into heaven, and that's your passive voice verb. He's carried up into heaven. So that's the same thing that Mark was saying. So in terms of the geography here, uh, this ridge line to the upper right corner of your slide is the Mount of Olives, and just off this, the, the picture would be Bethany around, uh, around the corner of that ridge line. And this is the temple. This is the Kidron Valley that runs roughly uh, north to south. And so Jesus goes to Bethany, then he walks back up to the high point of the ridge here, and then he is received into heaven. This is just another uh, depiction, a map of the uh, old city of Jerusalem and the, as it existed at the time of Christ. And again, you have the temple here. You have the Kidron Valley that runs north to south. And across from the temple, there's the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is the ridgeline going up to the um, top of the Mount of Olives. And the steeple over here that you see in the upper left is the Church of the Ascension to commemorate Christ's ascension uh, to heaven. And so we started with those passages, and then we went to uh, Acts 1, which is where you get the most detail on the ascension. And it begins in Acts 1-4, when he assembled together with them... He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, uh, this was translated in the old King James as he commanded them to tarry. And there were those who misapplied this, thinking that all Christians need to tarry after they're saved or to wait until God gives you the Holy Spirit. And they came up with the idea that there's two works of grace, one when you trust Christ as Savior and one when you receive the Holy Spirit missing the point that the disciples were coming out of the 
uh, age of Israel, and on the day of Pentecost, the church age would begin. And so before uh, the day of Pentecost, they did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we have it for every believer in the church age. And so Christ is telling them, and it's roughly 10 days after his ascension, that the Holy Spirit will descend. So he tells them, don't leave. Wait here in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which was the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, which you have heard from me. And in verse 6, he says, "Therefore, uh, we're told, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is a significant question for a lot of different reasons, because Jesus' answer to them is that it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus doesn't answer their question because he's taught them about this, and they'll get this figured out, but the kingdom wasn't going to come, not on the day of Pentecost. That was not the coming of the kingdom uh, in amillennial theology. This is uh, Reformed theology that doesn't believe in a literal future 1,000-year uh, geopolitical reign of Christ from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Notice all the ways you have to use, all the phrases you have to use just to define that. Uh, the millennium is a literal geophysical political kingdom where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as the Messiah, in his hypostatic union of the God man, will rule from the throne of David, literally from Jerusalem. And so you have a whole spectrum of uh, people throughout most of the church age, because under allegorical interpretation from approximately 300 or probably 250 until uh, the 1500s, when everybody's tr uh, interpreting this uh, as a, a allegory, the kingdom is viewed as a spiritual kingdom, and that that spiritual kingdom came when the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. And so vast numbers of Christians don't believe in a literal geophysical political kingdom of Christ on the earth. Then you have those who are post-millennialists. Post means after, that Jesus doesn't return until after the millennium comes in, after the and they will take the thousand years as a symbolic number. And that's their view. But Jesus, after he ascends, the, the uh, two angels that show up say Jesus will return in the same way he left. Well, that's not what you see on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit coming down and indwelling the believers is not the same as, as Christ. They watched him physically take off and being received into a cloud and that you don't see him return like that physically, bodily to the earth, not at uh, the day of Pentecost and not at the, um, at the time of the uh, Jewish revolt in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And that's what post mills say and preterists. They believe that most of Revelation and Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the past. That's the meaning of the word preterist in the past. And so uh, they say Jesus returned in clouds of judgment in A.D. 70. Well, that's not how he left in Acts, 
Acts 1. He left physically, bodily, and they could watch him ascend into heaven. And so this is very significant for all these various views uh, related to the end, end times. In Acts 1.9 states, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And the verb there that he was taken up is, again, a passive voice verb. It's an aorist passive, which means he is uh, being he, that, that something is doing the action, and he's receiving the action. And it says the cloud received him. And, again, uh, that is an aorist active because the cloud is the one performing the action of receiving him. Now, what's the cloud? Well, that's what this looked like as they looked at it, that it looked like a cloud. But we know that many times in the Old Testament, the uh, manifestation of God is as a cloud. For example, in the, uh, in the wilderness, when Israel is being led by God after they left uh, Egypt in the Exodus, they are led by a pillar cloud during the day. And then when they built the tabernacle, God descended. His presence was known in the, uh, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, because a cloud descended upon, um, uh, upon the Holy of Holies, and a cloud would descend upon Mount Sinai when Moses would go up and God, would, God gave him the law. And there are numerous other places throughout the Old Testament when God appears, it is associated with a cloud. So the cloud represents the presence of God who is receiving uh, Jesus to himself. And I always love this picture because they would have been just astounded as they watched Jesus ascend to heaven. And so we have the feet of Jesus just dangling here at the top of the picture as they're stunned and looking up and not knowing what to say. And in verse 10, we read, While they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now, I think the angels probably have a great sense of humor, and they were really chuckling to themselves that these guys just haven't seen anything yet. And um, so they they say, Why are you standing here? You've been given your uh, marching orders, your mission, and then they say, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also, uh, will so come in the, in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So that's not the day of Pentecost. That's not coming, uh, in clouds of judgment in AD 70. That is a literal physical return to the planet. And this is what Zechariah 14.4 uh, prophesies that in that day, that is at the second coming, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. So this is what happens as part of the second coming, because if we've studied, we see sev several different stages in the campaign of Armageddon, and it got, Christ will return when the Jews call upon him to deliver them. When they are have escaped Jerusalem, escaped Judea, they're probably over in the area of Jordan around Petra and Basra because of other prophecies. And then Christ is going to lead them in an assault on Jerusalem 
uh, from there. And when he comes to the Mount of Olives, there's already, already been a massive slaughter of those in Jerusalem, two-thirds of whom have been killed by the armies of the Antichrist. And then those there are calling upon Jesus, and he comes, he rescues them, splits the Mount of Olives so they have a way, a way to escape. And then he brings judgment upon uh, the armies of the Antichrist, and the Antichrist false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. So last time I pointed out four questions. I've added another question that should come to our minds as we study this. First of all, why did Christ have to ascend at all? Why not just begin the kingdom? What's going on here? Why is the kingdom postponed? Why doesn't the kingdom come at that point? And that's very important. And today you have such confusion about this among Christians thinking that we're in some form of the kingdom and that Jesus is now our king. And he isn't king on a throne until the second coming. Second question, why did Christ have to ascend before sending the Spirit? Why couldn't he just have brought the Spirit along while he was still on the earth? Third, why did Christ have to ascend before giving spiritual gifts? That's integral to our passage. Fourth, what is the connection between the ascension of Christ and the giving of gifts? What's happening here? That's, and, and, and Paul's going to answer that. And what's interesting is he goes to Psalm 68 to do so, and he applies that passage to the giving of gifts. But we have to take time to look at Psalm 68 because he changes it in the process, which raises some other questions that we'll get to when we get there. And then the last question, which I added this morning, is what is the connection between Christ's present session in heaven and our spiritual life? That's what this whole thing is driving towards. That's part of what makes our spiritual life as church-age believers in the body of Christ so different from every other age and why it is so critical for us to understand what we have been called to and the position that has been given to us. So we have to understand the background on the ascension. And the first question we ask is, well, what happened to God's plan when the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected and crucified? God had a plan, and it appeared that he, was, he had sent the Messiah, and on the basis of Old Testament prophecy, it, they, the Jews didn't understand that there were going to be two phases to this coming of Christ. They thought it was all going to happen at the same time, and they had confused the purposes of these comings. There's a coming in glory and the coming at the cross, and they had this this confused. And so what happens by rejecting Christ is, well, what happens to God's plan and program here? What's going on? So we have to address this. This is the first point. Jews expected a one-coming Messiah. When Jesus came at the first advent, it wasn't at all clear from Old Testament prophecy that there would be two comings. It appeared from you looking at those passages that there would only be one coming. Remember, we talked about uh, in Luke when Jesus stands up uh, to read 
from Isaiah 61 to read from the scroll in the synagogue that day, that the, the, the three verses there, the first three verses in Isaiah 61 just compress first and second coming uh, objectives. And Jesus just reads to the middle of the second verse and stops and sits down and says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. And there's obviously a gap between these two, which they don't understand or comprehend at all. And so we have this uh, illustration of what is called the mountaintop view of prophecy. Over here on the left bottom, you have the Old Testament prophet, and he's looking forward down the timeline of history, and he sees certain major events. But it's like if you're driving from here up to the mountains in Colorado and you see them off in a distance, you can't distinguish between the mountaintops. You just see the the whole range, and as you get closer and closer, you begin to distinguish different different um, peaks. And then if you get up in there, you realize there's uh, miles and miles between the different peaks. So in the Old Testament, they saw the mountain peaks of the birth of Jesus, that uh, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. You see prophecy related to the suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53, uh, 1 through 12. You see the coming of the future uh, prince who is to come, the Antichrist the, and the false prophet. You see that on another mountaintop. You see the fact that there will be the return or, or that there will be this glorious kingdom that will be established, uh, the son of righteousness there, Malachi 4, 1 through 6, and the uh, kingdom, you don't have a length on the kingdom, you just know there's going to be this literal, physical uh, kingdom on on the earth, and then a destruction of the earth by fire, according to this chart, you see they, they're putting that at the end of the kingdom, which is not what we saw when we studied through Second Peter. Uh, but I'm not going to go back and try to rewrite the chart here. So this is this is all that they saw, but they miss the fact that there's a certain time period between these events. So between the birth of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah, there's a certain amount of time. They had no idea what that would be. But between the death and resurrection of the Messiah... They don't have an, any understanding of the ascension. It's not prophesied in the Old Testament. And there's a huge valley between that mountain peak and the next mountain peak, which is the appearance of the Antichrist. So in the, according to Old Testament prophecy, they don't even understand the rapture because the rapture is what? The rapture of the what? The rapture of the church. There's nothing in the Old Testament that would give you an indication of the church, that there would this be this intervening age where God would call out a different and distinct people for himself, which are church-age believers, because there's a contingency here. You, if, and the contingency is they're going to be, the Messiah's going to come, and they're going to be offered the kingdom and if they accept the kingdom, the king, then the kingdom will come in. But if they don't accept the king, then the kingdom's going to be postponed. But you don't. Ha- if they had known that, they wouldn't have had a real contingency. So they don't know that he, they're going to reject the king and there's a postponement. So anything related to the church is left out. It's just not there. 
And once they reject the king, then God is not going to plan B because he always had this intention, but they didn't know that. So they had a real choice, a real contingency as to whether they would accept the king or not. So this is the issue when uh, the disciples ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the kingdom is postponed. First of all, we have to recognize that it didn't come at all. Now, that's important because of amillennialists and you have postmillennialists, and then you have progressive dispensationalism, which, as one covenant theologian put it, is neither progressive nor dispensational. And they say that it's already here, in a partial sense, and it's gradually coming in until Christ returns, and then it will be fully here. This is called the already not yet view of the kingdom. And this has become a dominant view today. And it's uh, not what the Scripture says. And the third option is the kingdom wasn't canceled. God is still going to fulfill his promises to Israel to establish the messianic kingdom on the earth where the Messiah will rule from Jerusalem. Now, the problem that the Jews had is they expected the crown before the cross. They read the prophecies related to the glories of the Messiah and just ignored the prophecies related to the suffering of the Messiah, or they minimized them. And so what they were looking for is that there would be the a crown before the cross instead of the cross before the crown. So the issue is how do you understand these prophecies? And they misinterpreted them, and they saw the crown before the cross. And so when Jesus came speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection and the sufferings, is they rejected that out of hand. In the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter, writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. They didn't understand these gaps, time gaps, between the prophecies. So they're trying to understand these, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted Notice that the he there refers to the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is the author, uh, ultimate author of Scripture. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That's what Peter's stating here. What was he predicting regarding, regarding the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow? That's in the right order. And so you have passages like Isaiah uh, 50, verses 6 through 7, and Isaiah 53, 3 through 11 are passages that are focusing on the suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53 reads, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore... And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. 
and by his stripes, that is, by the flagellation through the Roman uh, whip called the flagellum, uh, that is part of the work of Christ before the cross where he bore the penalty of our sins. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. That's the suffering Messiah. It was ignored. Even today, you talk to uh, Jews today that if they've ever read anything in the Old Testament, they don't read Isaiah, they don't read Daniel. And so uh, you have them read this, and they're just stunned. Of course, it took, we've gone through this when I did a study of, of Isaiah 53, that it took the Jewish rabbis a thousand years to figure out how they could come up with a interpretation where this wouldn't look like it was Jesus. And so their interpretation is that the suffering servant is the nation of Israel itself, the people of Israel, not the Messiah. But it was always understood to be messianic until about the 10th century uh, A.D. So um, in Isaiah 40, th- verse 3 through 5, we have the glorious Messiah. Uh, a voice is calling. This refers to the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill uh, be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." So they didn't see how to put these things uh, together at that time. So as when Christ came, there's an offer of the kingdom. We all remember this because we went through Matthew. For those of you who didn't, that's a great study. What we see is John the Baptist shows up, and he is the forerunner, and his message is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, calling the people to turn back to God based on God's promises in Deuteronomy 30, uh, 1 through 3, that when Israel would turn back to God, then God would recover them from all the nations of the world where they have been scattered. So there's the offer of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus has that same offer, sends out the disciples, they make that same offer, and it builds, and the conflict with the Pharisees and Sadducees intensifies and builds to a breaking point that comes in Matthew 12. And then there's the rejection of the king, and everything uh, changes at that point, uh, deteriorating until you get to the uh, crucifixion of the king and... Uh, you have the cross. So there's the offer of the kingdom, then the rejection of the king, Matthew 12, and then the crucifixion of the king, and I'm not going to do that again. Um, so what happens, what happens is in each gospel, you have this same pattern, even though they, they follow a little slightly different order in terms of how they're doing things. But what happens is the Pharisees accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He said, uh, and Jesus' response is, 
Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now, a lot of people have a lot of strange ideas about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But there's two things that are very clear here. Number one is this is a national sin. It is the sin of rejecting the offer of the kingdom. It is not a personal sin, and the issue at stake is not personal salvation. The issue is Jesus has come. The forerunner said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples said, repent for the kingdom of, uh, of the kingdom is at hand. And what did the Pharisees say? No, it's not. You're not the king. You're doing all this in the power of Satan. And so this represents the final rejection of the offer of the kingdom by the religious leaders of Israel, and that's not going to be forgiven. It means from this time forward, the kingdom is being taken from Israel. It's going to be postponed because of this rejection. So the baptism by the Holy Spirit, uh, the, I'm excuse me, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a national sin that only applied to that generation at that time. It didn't mean they couldn't be saved. It meant that from this point on, the divine discipline that would come in A.D. 70 is pretty much set, okay? And then um, God would enter into another phase of his plan that had not been previously revealed. And so Jesus just continues to win friends and influence the Pharisees here because he calls them, the King James called them a brood of vipers, but that word that's translated brood means offspring. It means the seed of something. And uh, the word translated vipers is a narrow meaning of the word, but it means serpents. Now, where have we run across the phrase seed of a serpent before in Scripture? And so Jesus is identifying them as being the seed of Satan, really going back to Genesis 3.15 when we have the first indication of the gospel. Uh, After the sin of Adam and Eve, God announces the judgment or the consequences on the seed, on on the serpent, and says that the seed of the woman, which is a reference to the Messiah, will step on the head, crushing blow of the seed of the serpent. And so the seed of the serpent, this is what Jesus is calling them. They know exactly what he is saying, and uh, he just continued to um, aggravate them. And then everything changes after that. Matthew 13, he starts teaching in parables. So we have the before and after. Before, Jesus performed miracles, and these signs were directed to Israel only so that they would believe in him and accept, the king, accept him as the Messiah and accept the kingdom. But after this, the signs, the miracles that he did were for the disciples in order to train them. Before Matthew 12, he taught the masses who had no faith. He would teach to the large crowds. But after Matthew 12, he teaches the disciples in order to train them for their future ministry. Uh, Before, he told the disciples, he told those he healed, tell everybody. Afterwards, he told them to tell no one. Why? Because the people have set their minds against him. Those who are for him have trusted in him. 
before the, he announced the uh, message of repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. And guess what? He never mentions it again after Matthew 12. He spoke openly to the crowds before and afterwards he spoke in parables. So these are the distinctions between before the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and after. So this introduces this major issue that serves as a backdrop to understanding the ascension and session. It's the kingdom. We have to understand that kingdom message correctly or it messes everything up. And how you understand the kingdom really is going to relate back to why we are dispensational. We're dispensational not because we like the theology. We're dispensational because that's the result of a consistent literal interpretation. As Dr. Walver told me one time when I mistakenly said uh, that, well, that we, we hold to that because we're dispensationalists. And he said, we hold to that because it's biblical. And because it's biblical, we're dispensationalists. So... Reformed and dispensational theology have two different approaches. Reformed theology cannot conceive of real contingency in their plan. Remember, in Reformed theology, God is absolutely sovereign. His foreknowledge works only because he has already determined what those things would be. In his omniscience, we studied this the other night, in his omniscience, he doesn't know all of the knowable, including all of the contingency. He only knows what he's predetermined and and his foreknowledge. And so, therefore, in Reformed theology, they see the only purpose of the first advent is salvation. It's limited to the cross dispensational theology recognizes the Bible says that that all of human history, everything is for the glory of God, and that um, when Christ came at the first advent, the purpose included going to the cross, but its primary initial purpose was to offer the kingdom to Israel. Because of their narrow focus, Reformed theology, that is Calvinism, cannot understand significantly the purpose for the ascension and what is happening now in the church age because of their limitations. So Dr. Chafer recognized this. Dr. Chafer was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and Dr. Chafer is the one for whom Chafer Seminary is named. And he says, again, the attentive student of the sacred text is confronted with major doctrines and age-characterizing ministries of Christ, which by theologians generally are neglected to the point of dishonor to Christ. Especially is this true of those of a covenant school who in defense of a man-made theory must avoid all that is distinctive in this age of God's supreme achievements. This is a fabulous statement pointing out that most Christians, most theologians, most pastors don't teach any of this, and therefore Christians don't understand how important their role is in the plan of God. He goes on to say, lest the dead level of a supposed immutable covenant, that's there why it's called covenant theology, 
should be brought to disorder and confusion. Why indeed should any emphasis be placed on the limitless achievements of Christ's present ministry when according to this theory, that is their theory, saints of former ages were equally blessed with saints of this age? It is no small issue that the present ministries of Christ, which are the greatest consequence, should be disregarded by theological writers. That's a profound statement. And how many times have you, uh, if you've been around here for a long time, I've taught this before uh, several times, that this is so important. So the third point is that John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples all proclaimed the same message of repentance directed to Israel and not to Gentiles. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right after that, uh, in verse 3, we understand who John is because uh, Matthew quotes Isaiah 4, 3, that he's the forerunner of the Messiah, the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord to make his path straight. You have this emphasis on the glorious Messiah. He's coming to offer the kingdom. And then uh, in Matthew 3, I'm going to skip that part. Matthew 4.17, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 10.5, he sends out the uh, disciples and sends them just to, notice verse 6, just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles, not to the Samaritans. And their message is still, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as we saw near the midpoint of his public ministry, the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan, and this rejection leads to the postponement of the kingdom. So we're not there yet. The church age was a surprise. It was not predicted in the Old Testament. So just to summarize, first of all, the postponement of the kingdom called for a postponement of glory. Second... The postponement meant that the issue of the king re, kingdom relates to the distinctive plans of God for Israel and the church. The kingdom is an Israel issue. The kingdom has to do with the fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah for Israel who would rule and reign from the throne of David, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And at that time that he comes to rule and reign, that's when the new covenant goes into effect. The sacrifice related to the new covenant was at the cross, but that doesn't mean the covenant begins. Covenants do not always have a sacrifice related to them. What is it that is distinctive in every covenant that initiates the covenant? The oath. Because you have... You have non, you have covenants where there's no sacrifice. The covenant God made with Phineas that through his line would be the priesthood, uh, the, the priesthood of Aaron would go. Uh, there's no sacrifice related to that. Uh, the the uh, covenant with David, there's no sacrifice related to that. So sacrifices are not always present when a covenant is, is started. What happens is there is an oath, and the prophets indicate that when Christ comes back, there is an oath declared with Israel. That is when the new covenant goes into effect. 
Third, postponement means there will be an unforeseen departure because now that the kingdom's not going, Messiah is going to go somewhere, and that means a second coming. So what we now have is an inter-advent age between the ascension and the, the second coming, and it includes the church age and the tribulation following the rapture. So we in this inner advent age have nothing happens here that was perceived in uh, in prophecy. So I'm going to stop here because we're running out of time, and the next sections of this are going to be important to work our way through. There's a lot to this. This is not a simple study because as we read through these passages in in the Gospels and in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, Paul's going to go to Psalm 68. But there's other passages like in Hebrews 1 that go to Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 2 and Daniel 7, and all of those passages are integral to understanding the structure of what's happening. Because in Psalm 110, at the end of the ascension, the Father says to the Son, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's this intervening period waiting for that to come. His enemies are defined in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth that gather against the Lord and his Messiah. And then you get to Daniel 7, and when it's finally time, then you see the Son of Man. That's where we learn what that term's all about. The Son of Man will go to the Ancient of Days and ask for the kingdom. And that's when the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gives him the kingdom. And that is when he will return at the second coming. So all of this connects together, and it's a lot of fun to go through it. But the bottom line is it tells us that that what is happening in Ephesians 4, what's happening in this dispensation with Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, that this is sort of the high point of the different people of God and God's work on this planet And it focuses on the church-age believer who has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And so we've got to get this background and this framework so we really understand what's going on. And we'll pick this up in two weeks when I get back from vacation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things. And it, it just seems so much, and there's so many parts of this that come from different sections of Scripture, and we see that the writers of Scripture, the writers of the New Testament, are the ones that go to these passages to put this picture together for us so that we can comprehend the significance of what is taking place with the church and with us as members of the body of Christ, and that we are called to a high calling because of this high position. Now, Father, we pray, too, for anyone listening who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that that, that's really the issue for you, to trust in Christ as Savior, that we are all sinners, Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that none of us can bring anything to the table that has any, any value or that will impress you because we are all sinners. But you loved us in such a way that you sent your only Son to die on the cross for our sins, 
that simply by trusting in him and him alone, we're given the free gift of eternal life. And so right now, anyone who's never trusted in Christ has the opportunity to do that. And God, who is omniscient, knows exactly what each of us is trusting in for our eternal salvation. Father, we pray for others here, believers, who need to be challenged with the fact that we've been called to this high, high position and we've been given all these blessings and our, our purpose is to serve you and to uh, fulfill the mission that you have given for every believer in the church age and not to live our lives for ourselves for we have been bought with a price and our life is not our own. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these truths in Christ's name. Amen.